0: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Professional Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Gunter, and today we are joined by the Chad Wesley Smith, the best name in the business. Chad is currently one of the most highly regarded strength and conditioning coaches in the industry, and he is the founder of Juggernaut Training Systems. Arguably the best name of a strength and conditioning platform in the business. I wish I could steal that. Chad himself is a former elite powerlifter, and he's posted two top ten all-time powerlifting totals, totaling over. Uh, this is this is correct. Two thousand three hundred twenty-five pounds with wraps, and over two thousand two hundred twenty-six pounds in sleeves. In addition, as if that wasn't enough, he's also a two-time collegiate national champion in the shot put, and as we discover today, he is currently taking up the sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and uh, after looking it up after our conversation, he's <laughs> taking it up quite well. I wish I would have asked him about that, but maybe we'll get to it next time. In addition to being an athlete, he, he's also coach at the upper echelon of sport for you know well over the last 10 years, and today he works with everyone from elite world champion mixed martial artists nfl mlb bobsledders powerlifting world champions and beyond so you know a lot of folks i think and for good reason think that he's focused primarily on powerlifting but he is working with top tier athletes across the entire spectrum including as we found out today number one draft pick joe burrow what up joe His online platform, Juggernaut Training Systems, has become one of the largest and most highly regarded multimedia training strength education platforms in the industry. He's also created a new form of programming that I was really excited to talk to him about. It actually leverages artificial intelligence and the program learns and adapts based on the inputs of the individual over time. You know, I think that's interesting. I actually think it represents a huge step forward from like kind of the traditional one-size-fits-all programs we've kind of grown accustomed to using online. We talk about that. That was really fascinating. And on that note, if you're enjoying the show and you haven't done so yet, please do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find the show. It helps us continue to get great guests. And uh, quite frankly, we just love to hear what you're thinking of the show. Appreciate all the feedback so far. If you also want to connect with us directly, Please feel free. You can follow up with us at the underscore professional athlete on Instagram. You can also see what we're doing there from a workout standpoint. I've got a couple goals that I'm training for that you might get a kick out of. And I I actually implement a lot of the concepts and methods that we talk about with various podcast guests. So you can see some of it put into action. You can judge uh, how well. If you'd like to drop us a line, if you either have an idea, you want to give us feedback, you have a guest that you'd love to hear, you can go to KenGunter.com, hit the contact section, and uh, get in touch with us that way. Back to today's show, I mean, if you're into strength and training and conditioning at all, you are going to get a ton from this conversation. I can say it was certainly one of the most informative podcasts that I've done. I had a whole list of questions for this guy and he answered a lot of them and man did he answer them thoroughly, which I super appreciated. Absolutely what I expected. And without a doubt, this show takes the cake for the most 80s movie references to date. So, it was a lot of fun. Make sure you stick around if this is your first time listening to the show. At the end we run it by my wife, Sonia Gunter. Typically, we recap key takeaways and I try and get her take on it, but she comes in hot today with strength and conditioning takeaways. She actually blew me away, which is not easy to do after three kids and uh, a successful marriage to date. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and let's welcome Chad to today's show. <laughs> i got too much to do yeah i gotta get going i gotta talk to you it's time to start the show <laughs> awesome chad well hey thanks for joining the show thanks for having me again yeah how have you uh how you been holding up with everything that's going on <laughs> uh
1: you know it's fairly normal to be honest. Uh, Good. I, I work from home anyways. so. Oh, do you really? Yeah. the The we haven't had a physical gym facility for almost three years. No um, kidding. Yeah. So the gym setups in my garage. Uh, the only real change for me is no. Has been no jujitsu because uh, you know that's the opposite of social distancing. Yeah. Uh, right a little over the last two weeks uh, we've been able to open back up and kind of get back to things there. But that even that wasn't really a big deal to me because in February, in back-to-back weeks, I dislocated and ruptured a tendon in this pinky. That's oh, yeah. Old. And then the next week, I dislocated or I ruptured a tendon in this thumb that had to have surgery and had a pin in it. So I wouldn't have really been training anyways. Yeah, a little uh, mandatory step away. Yeah. So wait, how, how did you injure? Was it was that
0: from jujitsu?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, this one was... I like had the grip on the pants, and the guy kicked his leg to break the grip and just kicked right into it. And yeah. then, uh, this was, as I reached for the grip, uh, basically like my thumb hit and just drove the tip down real hard and just detached the, the tendon from right at the top.
0: Uh, that's brutal. I, I did the pinky in college, so I know what you're going through there. Um, I don't know if you're smarter than I was and, and got it fixed, but I just... Yeah,
1: on, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's that they didn't want to do surgery on both of my hands, Um, but yeah, they declined to do surgery on the pinky, so it's just yep stuck like that. Maybe uh, I just yeah. do that on on <laughs> air here and just smash it straight again. You know, that'd be good radio, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, so actually, I mean, I think you know, a lot of people probably know you from your powerlifting background, but like, how
1: are you enjoying Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Oh, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I first got exposed to Jiu-Jitsu. They're really some of our, our first clientele at Juggernaut. Uh, one of the first cold call kind of things I did connected me with a gentleman by the name of Fabio Vilela Villela. G- okay. and, Gino, and I walked into his Jiu-Jitsu gym really not knowing anything about Jiu-Jitsu besides like uh, this is part of MMA and Hoist Gracie and oh, you know, yeah. wrestling kind of. And walk in there, and it's a six, seven, 250 hundred and fifty-pound Brazilian guy. And so I told them about what we did and how I think I could help him. And you know, said like, "I'll come. I'll train you if you like it. Tell your students. Tell your tell your friends." And uh, that turned into at one point having I um, mean, fifteen black belts, uh, multiple, multiple, multiple-time world champions. Um, really? Yeah. So all. All training with me, guiding their strength conditioning. You know, they'd, they'd all roll together and then come and lift two, three times a week. Uh, and they were always, you know, like, "Oh shed, come on, man, you got to train. You're gonna smash everybody. <laughs> hey the juggernaut? Let's go!" Yeah, uh, yeah. This was back 2009, 10, 11, 12. And at the time, I was, you know, very focused on on powerlifting, on strongman. Didn't want right. to risk, yeah. You know, breaking my fingers or something like that (laughs) or you know shoulders shoulders elbows wrists whatever so I sort of declined that and then uh 2016 end of 2016 I did what you know is the last powerlifting meet I've done I won't say for sure if it's the last one I'll ever do but probably uh so for most of 2017 just was focused on work not really training much and then uh, as we moved out of that gym facility we were in figured, you know, this is just kind of a, a clean break time for me to take on a new challenge. Yeah. So, you know, let's call those guys up. I hadn't seen any of them in a couple of years. And then, uh, yeah, went, went from there. And it's been a ton of fun. It's just a whole new challenge. Um, yeah, it's being strong helps, but it's not it's certainly not the be all end all uh, as the technique is just endless and it's getting me moving in ways that I hadn't moved in uh in several years and you now big challenge on cardio and all that and just a really cool community man jiu jitsu several places across the US now Ireland, Australia, uh Canada. So, you know, you can pretty much any city you're in now, I think you can find a place to roll and and right. uh you know, a, a community of people who are into that.
0: Man, I So that's the one thing that I've wanted to get into that I haven't. And for some of the reasons you mentioned, right? Like one, I am a little scared of like uh, the injury aspect of it, particularly the shoulders. I've had some shoulder injuries in the past. So I'm like, I don't know how well that's going to translate. But I I don't know if uh, you're into watching some of this old school UFC fights, but like Mm -hmm. ESPN has like released basically the whole catalog. And I just,
1: I've got, I've got fight pass. So I've I've
0: watched all UFC one on from there. I just went through and watched UFC 1, 2, and 3, I think, uh, like, last week. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that might that might have been some of the best stuff they've ever done. <laughs> like, watching Hoist Gracie go through and just, like, how distinct at that time all the styles were.
1: For sure. So- it was, you know, I think it's a lot more like the movie Bloodsport in that, yeah. <laughs> in, you know, this sort of... And, and that's really how the UFC started, was right. uh, uh, the... The guy's name is escaping me, but who he contacted Horion Gracie basically with this idea of like, you know, I was in this this argument at a at a bar with my buddies, who would win in the fight? You know, Mike Tyson or or you know Bruce Lee kind of deal, right. not, not a specific one, but that that argument is so sort of foundational, I think, and and fascinating to people like who would win in a fight, a bear or a gorilla? Oh and, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so then they found the answer out.
0: Oh, it's it's, so yeah. If anyone's listening and hasn't seen that, go back and watch it because it is. uh, I mean, hoist Gracie must have been, I don't know, 180 pounds. Maybe I'm being generous at that time. And like some of the dudes that he's rolling in there, there was a legit sumo wrestler who was one of the contestants in the tournament. I mean, it was just like every walk of life and fighting style you could imagine. (laughs) If you're in that, pretty quickly,
1: you should check out. they kind of cover it in that thirty for thirty, the Chuck versus Tito, uh, thirty for thirty. But there's a thirty for thirty podcast called oh. "Yeah, No Holds Barred: The Birth of the UFC." I think is what it's called. And oh, uh, awesome! Yeah, check. And it's just one one episode, but you know, forty five minutes is very interesting.
0: Yeah, I'll check that out. That was another good documentary, the Chuck and Tito one. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't have all the background on the relationship. I guess I was just too young to appreciate it. And, uh, my parents were trying to do the right thing and not let me watch UFC at that time when I was <laughs> uh, so impressed. I, I remember before. my
1: brother, my, I have too much, much older brothers. So, you know, UFC one, I think was in 93. So that would have been my oldest brother's senior year of high school. And okay. I was seven. Uh, and you know, he had seen that or maybe his freshman year of college saw it or something and tell, tell me about it. And then I'd see the, those videos at Blockbuster and then, yeah. I was gonna say that you used to have to get like the VHS. Yeah, that was um, the only way you get your hands on it. Yeah, and like asking my parents, "Oh, can we can I rent these? Can I watch these?" No, and then like having sleepovers at my friends' houses and asking their parents, oh, can we yeah. these? <laughs> You always
0: had that one friend with the cool dad yeah. who there was a shot. If you went to Blockbuster, you could pull pull something like that off. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, okay. So you, you've uh, essentially retired, so to speak, quote unquote, from, from the sport of powerlifting. Um, But what's, what's amazing, you already mentioned it is, you know, while you have such a strong powerlifting background, uh, you've worked with athletes from kind of all arenas of sport.
1: Um, Yeah. You know, I was a sport performance coach before I did powerlifting myself. Uh, I was a sport performance coach after I did powerlifting. Uh, you know, we started as a sport performance gym in uh, yeah. Orange County in September, 2009. You couldn't have been a powerlifting gym in Southern California in 2009, at least not one that actually wanted to pay your rent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, cause CrossFit was not booming yet. It had not mm-hmm. expanded the powerlifting and weightlifting marketplaces yet. So, you know, I trained football players and jujitsu athletes and volleyball and soccer and water polo and swimmers and all kinds of stuff. And even once I started doing powerlifting in uh, summer 2010, I finished my track career, graduated from college in 2009, competed one year as a post-collegiate in the shot put through the 2010 outdoor season. And then uh, July 2010, started training for my first powerlifting meet. But even once I started competing in powerlifting and became established there very quickly, we did not become a powerlifting gym. I did powerlifting and I was the only person at the gym who did powerlifting, well, yeah. did sport performance coaching. And then uh, we moved out of that first facility in 2012. The lease was up. And at that point, I'd written the first Juggernaut Method book and I, I continued coaching, uh, d- doing like offseason training for football players uh, after that, but put most of my attention towards creating content and traveling to teach powerlifting seminars Mm. Um, I would do some sport performance seminars as well. The first seminar I ever did by myself was a, a sport performance seminar two days in Boston. I lectured for seven hours the first day and then coached for seven hours on you know running technique and med ball throws and all that kind of stuff. The next That's day, awesome. uh, in hindsight, I would have probably mixed those days together a little bit more rather yeah. than seven hours of lecturing. Behind <laughs> yeah, so I so just really began to grow uh, in the powerlifting space since then, and it was sort of you know turned turned out to be good because football coaches, football strength coaches, track strength coaches, where you know my main background is people who work with baseball players or jujitsu or whatever that they're all interested in how to help their athletes become stronger. Yeah. So powerlifting is not only applicable to powerlifting, but the ideas of it and technique and stuff is applicable across the board. So yeah, you yeah, know, that's allowed me to still work in the sport performance area. I did a uh, combine prep for the NFL this year, yeah. I had the number one overall graphic and uh big Dick Joe, Joe Burrow. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah. You know, do some Joe? consulting for different NFL teams and stuff. So I get to do enough of the sport performance stuff to, to keep me engaged there. But but yeah, you know, the main effort for me is, is powerlifting coaching. And we have our weightlifting coach, Max Ada, uh, right. as well as, you know, the rest of our, our team of coaches for Juggernaut. So let me, let me ask you a question. It's one of the reasons
0: I wanted to have you on the show. So I, I've been a huge fan of your platform for a very long time now, just in terms of like the content that you put out, uh, it's, it's really diverse in that it, it covers, you know, I mean, it, you get really granular on something as, uh, specific as like how to bench press, hmm. you know. I even went back and watched uh, one of your your series last night. But then, it, I mean, it really it, it covers everything. And I've even tapped into some of your articles for like uh, combine training, and because it, it overlaps with some of the goals that I've had in, in the recent uh, recent events that I was competing in. But um, you know, what I wanted to ask you is, so h- how are you working with these guys across the country now? If if you don't have a physical gym. Is everything like uh, remote consulting, coaching based, or are you traveling out to see these guys and work with them hands-on? Like, uh, clearly, you're still working with people at a very high level across multiple sports. Like, kind of, how are you getting that done?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much all all remote. Um, you know, for for my own coaching, I have at this point I just have like a handful of powerlifters uh, that I personally coach. Uh, the only one really consistently in person is my girlfriend. Marissa in the uh, 2017 IPF world champion, five times straight American, uh, us national champion. Um, and then, so I have a small handful of powerlifters, but most of that is just, you know, send them the sets and reps and get their feedback and watch some videos. Uh, yeah. And on the sport, perfor- sport performance side of things. I have, uh, two us bobsled athletes that I, that I do their physical preparation stuff. And, uh, the number one U S hammer thrower and then a Olympian for Greece in the shot put, but he's America is lives in America, but competes for Greece. Got uh, it. But yeah. It's just all, all remote, you know, we just communicate and write the program and tweak it as they give me feedback and you know watch some videos here and there. So yeah. Not, not too complicated in that sense, but you know, in a, in a broader coaching sense, we have our juggernaut AI, Coaching systems for powerlifting, power building, and weightlifting. Uh, and yeah, did, I definitely did, want to ask me. you about that. Yeah. So, once we, did, you know, that, that was pretty much designed out of the effort of there was a going to be a bottleneck of how many people, you know, I can coach or any, any coach can deliver quality programming to. So, I was like, well, how can we bring my coaching logic to a broader uh, audience mm-hmm. through, you know, taking away the time constraint of me actually doing it and the cost? Constraint of uh, you know what one-on-one coaching would would cost people to do. Yeah, so, yeah. So we developed the the you know the powerlifting on my side of things, which at this point really makes better programs than I could to be honest, because uh, it just contracts so much more data. And powerlifting is kind of a you know it's a sport for strong nerds because it is such a data-driven sport. It's like a big it's a big math problem uh you know whether that's balancing volume and intensity and then as you bring in you know more technology if it's something like velocity based training uh or just you know tracking different recovery metrics there's yeah. you know really syst- uh, systematic ways to adjust the training in the long term
0: yeah. Can we can we talk about that a little bit? Um, sure. You know, one of the things I even had written down that I want to ask you about today, because just knowing that you work with a lot of guys on combine prep and then powerlifting, everyone's peaking for a meet. I'm so interested to understand like your approach to peaking your athletes, like to perform at their best at a specific competition at a certain day and time. But you mentioned that there's like some recovery metrics and things uh, that you're looking at to kind of help guide like the way in which you're programming for your athletes. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of metrics you're monitoring and then I guess how you're using those to, um, you know, create or alter the programs for your, for your athletes?
1: Yeah. So uh, we create a, a, what we call a readiness rating, and that hmm. is based off of the athlete uh, reporting how much sleep they got, the quality of that sleep, uh, just their their sort of general mood and motivation to train, and then rating soreness of different you know body parts. Hmm. Um, it creates a score of zero to five for them. Uh, five meaning you know I feel great, I'm really ready to go, and so yeah. you know we know the baseline of what. The, the training would be if they feel average. So mm. if they feel great. It can become you know a little bit more volume or a little bit more intensity, depending on what phase they're in. If they you know feel run down, it's gonna reduce the the difficulty of that day's training. And it's tracking those readiness ratings, you know, day after day after day. So yeah. it's looking at like the cumulative, you know, how does and then they, they also rate the how hard the session was at the end of it. So it's looking at those, the combination of those numbers to affect the next day along with the next day's readiness questionnaire, and then looking at the average of that entire week to adjust the next week, the average of that month of training to adjust adjust the next month, the uh, averages of that entire block of training to, or like the entire program to adjust the next program. Hmm. And is, you know, is that all...
0: Yeah. Is that, is that all like qualitative or like survey based or are you using any, uh, like wearable trackers? So we don't use
1: wearables right now. Uh, I I would see at some point, you know, using something like, uh, HRV or sleep monitoring, um, a combination of those, um, you know, from like just heart rate tracking for powerlifting doesn't really play much of a role. Um, HRV, while it's definitely got usefulness in a kind of broader group sense to see trends, uh, typically when someone has a reduction in their HRV score, you know, they go into the red or whatever um, it's kind of a lagging indicator of their, of their readiness, but it can be Mm. useful for sure. Um, You know, taking some of the subjectivity of things of like, how well did you sleep? out of it and and a device being able to say, well, this is how well they slept. Yeah. That's definitely got, uh, got value. And then, you know, so eventually we'd like to to incorporate that as well as more velocity based information rather than someone rating, well, this set felt like a eight RPE, you know, eight out of 10 or whatever. Uh, we can just create an individualized velocity profile for that person. Uh, even though all those bar tracking, apps and and stuff is not the best uh, most consistent information and even really expensive things like a Tendo unit or a gym aware uh, account for the bar moving forwards and backwards only up and down Uh, that can throw the the measurements it gives off Uh, but as things improve there and become less cost prohibitive that's definitely something we'd like to incorporate as well to to really just make it as totally uh, objective as possible
0: yeah, and and the uh, for for people listening, so like the idea behind the velocity measures, right? That that's literally trying to understand. So like again, I mentioned bench press. If you're doing bench press, right, it, it's trying to un- understand uh, the velocity at which that person's actually moving the bar, mm-hmm. right? And is the idea there that the velocity is is a better indicator um, of someone's physical readiness because? when they are at like a, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know if this is the right term, but like a peak performance state, like they're going to move the bar faster.
1: Yeah. The, the, so in the powerlifting sense where all that really matters is it goes up. Um, you know, the, there's the pretty, speed, pretty critical the speed quality uh, really necessary for powerlifting. You could be as slow as you want. Hmm. Um, so it still counts, but right. we've got some velocity based data, you know, averages of, of bigger populations to say, you know, if it's going this fast, it's, you know, this strength quality is being developed, speed, strength, uh, explosive strength, strength, speed, all that sort of stuff. Um, or, you know, if, if the velocity goes below this uh, typically people miss um, if, if the velocity is declining at a given rate from rep to rep to rep, uh, you know, then you can be predictive of how many more reps could they have done? Would they have missed the next rep? Mm. All the and those would would form like you know the understanding for the first program. But then, as we begin to develop your own, you know Ken's velocity profile, we might see that you know you can do reps when they're really fast, and as soon as the bar slows down, very much you miss or that you're really, really grinding through these slow reps. So, you know, if, if you've seen a lifter like uh, Dan green, Dan green is phenomenal at, at doing like really slow reps, like grinding through reps or, you know, I'll see him do two reps and be like, Oh, you know, that was pretty strong for two. And yeah. Then he goes on to do three more reps where I'm very much on the other side of things like where I, I do might do two fast reps, and then the third one, I I miss. Uh, so individualizing that stuff further would be that much more, you know, significant to, to be able to, for the system to be able to tell people like, okay, you can go up and wait, go down and wait, you know, cut, uh, you know, your that exercise is done for the day, whatever it may be.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, something that I've been trying to pay a lot more attention to, and, uh, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that I I didn't even know that this was a thing, but like just the central nervous system back when I was playing college football, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I I don't think there was at any point during my five years where I I even considered how my central nervous system was doing it at a given point. Um, Is is this something that can also kind of help infer like, you know, when you're starting to get your, your CNS is starting to get fatigued? And I guess... You know, it would, uh, you kind of said this already, like once you have a baseline, maybe it, is it like an early warning signal that like, Hey, this guy's gassed, his speeds aren't what they normally are. Velocity isn't what it normally is.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, the velocity can be a big indicator of neural fatigue. Mm. Um, neural fatigue is very significant in the training because it takes a lot longer to decay that than just like muscular fatigue. Um, yeah. And it's, it's brought on by the much higher level efforts. So when you go and lift as heavy as you can, sprint as fast as you can, jump as high as you can, especially the stuff that's really high, uh, velocity like sprinting and jumping, you don't have to do a ton of it, uh, to generate a lot of neural fatigue and, and you might not even feel tired in the sense that, Oh, you know, I was, I was sweating my ass off and huffing and puffing or yeah. from it, but you know, Usain Bolt's not going out, back-to-back days and running, you know, nine, seven hundred meters because of a uh, huge neural effort uh, that yeah. he does will have that systemic neural fatigue. So h- how do you help
0: track that for your athletes? And I guess, how do you identify like when it's time to back off? Um, you know, and, and I guess maybe even more broadly, maybe you can talk about the approach that you have your athletes, and I'm sure it depends upon sport, but, uh, you know, the approach you take with like deloading.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as, as far as fatigue management goes, tracking all these different metrics like sleep and, and just, you know, mood, motivation to train soreness, those yeah. can, can be, that should be the the first place to start when, uh, be able to do that stuff, but training should be, you know, largely predictable, uh, hmm. assuming that the athlete's lifestyle is relatively consistent. You know, yeah. you get someone who one week they sleep great, the next week they sleep bad. They're all over the place with their diet, high stress lifestyle, whether that's you know a manual labor job or you know a, a very stressful home life for, for, you know, however many different reasons, uh, yes. school, school, all those kind of stuff that complicates the issue, certainly of, of being able to manage their fatigue and predict things, uh, well, but, you know, assuming that kind of stuff is typically normalized, we're looking at establishing these volume landmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we look at our, our, uh, really four, four different numbers, but, uh, the two main ones that we focus on, we call MEV, minimum effective volume, and MRV, maximum recoverable volume. Hmm. And MEV is the least amount of training you can do to make a very small improvement. And maximum recoverable okay. volume, the most training you can do in a micro cycle, like in a week, yeah. uh, can be recovered, so like back to baseline by the, the following week. So we, and the, the way that the Juggernaut AI does this is. Those volume landmarks are individualized, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, but by some some easy to understand individual differences, we can make a lot of uh, you know good estimations about what's happening with them. So, gender, height, weight, strength, experience, um, lifestyle factors are things that people can tell us about. And we know, all right, well, females can tolerate more volume than males and short people more volume than tall people and light people more volume than heavy people. And, uh, you know, as as lifters go from beginner to intermediate to advanced to very advanced, they can kind of tolerate more, more, more. And then it's going to start to to taper off. And as they get stronger and stronger, every lift they do is more fatiguing uh, because of the neural fatigue part of Mm -hmm. the stronger you get, the less volume uh, and and I'm referring to these volume landmarks as number of sets within yeah. range. So like for us our hypertrophy work is all between 55 to 70%. Sets so a six to twelve. So I'll refer to like MEV and MRV numbers as you know maybe MEV of 10, MRV of 20 in hypertrophy. Uh, okay. but I'm only looking at sets that are within that range. Um, so tonnage is really the the other Number that would be considered, but it's tonnage is more uh, just for the individual, where the number of sets I can speak about in a in a group sense. So yeah. those individual factors are going to help us inform. All right, that you know Ken Ken can probably benefit from this much volume and tolerate this much volume, um, and then from there, your readiness ratings will help refine those numbers as you go. So hmm. while you know, we might go into it just looking at your gender, height, weight, strength, experience, uh, the technique you have in the lifts, like sumo deadlift can tolerate more technique than conventional or more hmm. volume than conventional deadlifts, what your lifestyle factors are like, so how's your sleep, how's your diet, how's your away from training stress, um, what type of training you've done before, which we call historical workload, hmm. how you... Sort of assess, you know, our, our best effort to, for you to assess your genetics, we call historical recovery ability. Um, okay. When you tell us that stuff about you, we might be able to say, all right, Ken probably needs about 10 sets of squats per week to improve, and he can probably tolerate up to 16 sets per week, while someone else might be from, you know, six to 20 and more advanced. Bigger, stronger lifters will have a, a more narrow band. They might be from you know ten to thirteen. Hmm. Uh, so as as it, that changes, we can then be predictive about when you would need that deload. So is it going to you know if you have a really big spread between numbers, so more beginners, lighter weight lifters, you know they, it may be appropriate for them to train for four or five weeks hard and then a deload. While bigger, stronger, more experienced lifters. They're probably two or three weeks, hard training and then a deload. Wow. Um, but deloads are, are definitely a, a valuable part of, of training uh, because you know, good training is, is hard. The most effective training is going to be, yeah. very hard. it's going to be pushing towards that maximum recoverable volume and sort of the space between the MEV and MRV. Uh, we call MAV maximum adaptive volume, sort of where your best gains are going to happen. Hmm. Um, but for people who are like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't need a deload. Well, you're not training as hard as you could be. You know, you're not uh, making progress as fast as as you could be. Um, so yeah, deloads a really valuable part of, of training and and being able to predict when you need it isn't that complicated to do because people who are like, well, I'll just I'll just deload when I need a deload. Hmm. That if you're just training to train, that can work. Okay, yeah. But typically, even in that scenario, that person will then be deloading after they need to deload. Um, huh. But if you're getting ready for a meet, you can't just train, train, train and be like, OK, now I need to deload because maybe that made your hypertrophy cycle go too long. Or now you just you don't have the right timing going into into a meet to be able to peak properly and, and put your best performance forward there when it actually counts. Yeah, um, really be able to plan that out you know, from the start of the training cycle.
0: Yeah. And uh, man, you said a lot of things in there that, that are really interesting. So thinking first about this AI platform that you've built, um, you know, what is kind of the initial data that went into creating that AI? Was it was this all things that you'd validated over your I mean, over a decade worth of just coaching your individual athletes? And then is, is the AI continuing to kind of learn as you kind of like get more, you know, robust scale from from all the folks adopting it and, and feeding data into the
1: system. Yeah, so it is, uh, was known as an expert system, artificial intelligence, which is basically applying the, it's you know getting this the computer to make decisions in the same way that an expert me would. So it's yeah. not it's not a machine learning system, and I can okay. go into sort of the ethics of uh, of machine learning in applications to humans because people actually have to do these programs that, that it writes in the, in the mobile app we're, we're working on there. There will be more machine, some aspects of machine learning involved oh, cool. in that, but really the updates as, as we've gone have been, you know, just feedback from, from the, the clients, you know, seeing who is most successful with hmm. the programs, what are their, what are their volume landmarks being set at? What are their, you know, where, how are they typically rating their or what is their readiness ratings typically yeah uh, what trends do we see in those in those readiness ratings you know adjusting proportions of how much hypertrophy they do to how much strength they do to how long their peaking phases are different styles of periodization they get implemented um because the the initial creation of it yeah that was that was based on my coaching logic these are the decisions i'd make for this type of lifter this type of lifter this type of lifter yeah. rules for well if you have a lightweight lifter we do this and if they are male this happens lightweight so on and so forth um, and there's just tens of thousands of those I mean the, the initial program that that the, that is created through the AI system now has about 9 quadrillion permutations to it <laughs> uh, and that system which is you know not uh individualized through these nine quadrillion ways then adjusts within the session session to session week to week Mm. month to month program to program for the athlete so once they've gone through you know 10 12 weeks of training like it's really getting dialed very very much for them and and so i you know i see people and and i've contributed to this myself you know they're selling a program that's in an ebook or they're selling a template or whatever and, and people are using that. And it's like, you know, that might be a fine program and it might work if we look at like everyone in the in a bell curve, it's gonna work pretty well for some right. of that bell curve, but that is a program that has uh, fixed sets and reps. It is, you know, it is static mm-hmm. where what we have can work, you know, for the entire bell curve because it's adjusting the The program for any type of lifter in there. We've had I think the the strongest, the biggest total we've had is someone made a twenty one fifty total in the two seventy five class. Uh, there's been five wow. guys about eight hundred pounds, five guys, and I think three of them the same people uh, deadlift over eight hundred pounds using using it uh, maybe three or four five hundred pound benchers. Um, you now people who've gone from class one totals to International elite totals, as well as beginner lifters using it. And that, you know, the beginner lifter part of it is like it's sort of easy. Lots of things work when you're a beginner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I try and get people away away from the idea that there is that there's beginner programs, intermediate programs, advanced programs. Uh, that there's programs that are better for heavyweights or lightweights or or men or women or whatever because their programming. You know the distinction between a program and programming is the principles, the scientific principles the strength training that we use to guide our programming decisions. They exist in all effective programs. Hmm. The way that they get applied, what the what overload entails for lifter A versus lifter B changes, but specificity is always important. The principle of overload has to always exist. Your program has to have some level of fatigue management in it. Mm. You know, all of those things are are always important. You no one will have a good program that does not apply the principle of overload to it. You know, yeah. it'd be so individualized to that person. But if it doesn't if, if it doesn't overload, it's a training that's not sufficiently stimulating, like enough volume or enough intensity to drive muscle growth or strength increases and it doesn't get harder over time, it won't work. No mm-hmm. matter no matter what. No matter if it's the you know, exercise is just for this person's unique weak points or whatever. It has to have these principles and those individual differences, gender size, strength, um, experience, all that stuff, that dictates how the, the principles are applied and the magnitude of them. And, and that's why what we've created can work for everyone from beginner to to advanced, from you know, four foot ten hundred pound girl who's been lifting for six months to six to 350 pound dude who's been lifting for 20 years uh, Yeah, because it's adjusting what, what it gives them.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's so cool. I and mean, I, I have to imagine it's gotta be pretty exciting. Um, and I mean, you're, you're now, I mean, literally uh, I didn't realize you'd gotten rid of the physical gym, but I mean, just like the scalability of, you know, what this kind of, uh, creates, you know what I mean? And, and you know, oh, just yeah. the, the scalability of being able to work with a ton of different people. And to your point, it's awesome to hear that, you know, amateurs are getting a ton from it as well as like elite level power lifters who are, you know, like starting to push the boundaries of, of being some of the best in the world. Um, and that's pretty cool. You know, I, I'm just thinking now for, for the listeners, right? Because I run into so many people and I work for a tech company and I'll bump into people in the cafeteria. And one of the guys that I worked with actually started using your AI program. Uh, interestingly enough, and he had a deadlift goal. And people might not
1: suspect that from people working within tech, but you know I what I know. mean?
0: There's, there's powerlifters everywhere, people who love to get strong.
1: Max did a uh a seminar at Facebook headquarters for like the Facebook staff's powerlifting club. See, awesome. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah, they're they're everywhere. Um you know, so so the scalability was is so cool, but you know, just you were kind of harping on like, hey, this your program has to at least have this basic principle of like overloading. Can you just kind of describe like what that entails for people? Because I know there's a lot of people who go to the gym, they think they're putting in work, and they get frustrated maybe by the the lack of results. It, it might be something as simple as what you were mentioning is like a necessary an ingredient that they need to be taking into consideration.
1: Yeah, so uh, seven seven principles. I try and keep my grotesque pinky out of it. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> next. So, we have a whole book about this Scientific Principles of Strength Training, co authored by myself, Mike Isertel, and uh, James Hoffman. Specificity. So, obviously, the training has to uh, support the underlying systems of success for whatever. In power that's muscle size. Uh, Neural force production technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for weightlifting, it changes. For sport performance, it changes. But yeah. all successful programs are going to be guided by specificity, which creates a framework in which all the other decisions are made. Principle number two, the principle of overload, that uh, this will all be in the context of powerlifting now, that yeah. uh, the training has enough volume to support muscle growth that it is heavy enough to... Uh, support, you know, improve force production and, and those neural qualities that you're, you know, getting enough enough training to develop technical prowess. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three is fatigue management That while, uh, and the other part of, of overload is that the training must become harder over time. So mm-hmm. as that training becomes harder and harder and harder, we can't just go on and do that in perpetuity. Um, you know, you can't train harder tomorrow than you did today and harder the next day after that. Yeah. is going gonna, is gonna to accumulate and that's neural fatigue it's joint and tendon integrity it's muscle soreness um, there's a lot of different factors sort of all working together um, so it's much more nuanced than just fatigue um, mm-hmm. you have to manage that somehow so whether that's through taking deloads through you know, undulating and modulating volume and intensities through not just trying to train harder and harder and harder every single day yeah, um, you have to have some component of, of fatigue management in there. The next one is called stimulus recovery adaptation principle of SRA. Uh, that's really goes a long way to inform about frequency of training. So how often should you be training hard? Because as mm-hmm. you introduce a stimulus and I, uh, is the video of this go up or is it only the audio? No, it's
0: just the audio. All
1: right. Well, I'm drawing a graph with my finger. As he points at me and draws a graph. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll annotate for everyone listening. Yeah. It's a, it's an air graph. <laughs> um, luckily for for the listeners, we've got a lot of videos about topic oh, yeah. as well as uh, as well as books. Probably more than they'll ever care to watch or read, but you know, still <laughs> enjoying it. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, make sure to, I'll make sure I'll make sure to link to it. The stimulus is introduced, uh, fatigue is generated from that, and then you know, over a process of uh, over a period of time, the athlete's going to recover, adapt to that stimulus to have like some level of super compensation. So improved abilities to what they had before. Uh, you have to introduce the training again. So that's just sort of the pr- the process of training and the timing of those sessions is really significant because you know technique has its own SRA curve, neural force production has its own SRA curve, hypertrophy has its own SRA curve, and they're not all the same. So finding that sort of sweet spot uh, between you know being recovered enough to do the next session but not Waiting so long that you know your technique starts to get rusty or your you know gains start to kind of fall off is important. The next principle uh, number five is variation. Uh, mm. Principle of variation and specificity are kind of like two sides of the same coin. Uh, another concept we refer to in this and got a YouTube video just about this called directed adaptation versus adaptive resistance basically, if you want something to improve, you need to train that quality. But the longer you train it the with the same modalities, the slower the results will come. So that's where variation needs to be introduced, whether that's changing set rep schemes, changing exercises, um, changing frequency of, of training to give your body some novel stimulus to force it to continually adapt. There are lots of people who they give too much attention to variation and not, not enough to specificity, too much attention to adaptive resistance. So avoiding that slowing down of gains rather than direct adaptation of, I want to improve at this thing. So I need to do it yeah. uh, which is a mistake, but they both play a role. Uh, it's also important to, you know, strategically use variation to avoid injury. Principle number yeah. six is phase potentiation so that we're, Uh, Creating a logical, a strategic sequence of training to where each aspect of training builds upon the previous one. So it's fairly straightforward. Uh, We train for hypertrophy to make a muscle bigger. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, we stack strength to increase the force production ability of those bigger muscles. And then on top of that, we stack peaking uh, where we're going to develop the technical prowess of the competitive lifts of those bigger, more force producing muscles we've created in the subsequent phases. Uh, That's also going to help us manage fatigue, decaying fatigue while keeping fitness high. So on the day that matters, the powerlifting meet, you can be your strongest and express, um, you know, express all the hard work you've done. And finally, principle number seven, individual differences, is what dictates, you know, is what makes those sort of micro adjustments within well, what is, you know, for overload, what is sufficient volume? What is sufficient intensity for that person based on gender, size, strength, experience, all of those different factors and yeah. what is appropriate for, uh, I always mess up inter and intra individual, but, you know, and I cool. won't know. I won't know the data. Yeah. So, so. Like for, for you, let's say, how must your training change? You know, uh, a year from now compared to today, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, as you become bigger, stronger, uh, more experienced, you know, probably with some different kind of, you know, injuries of varying degrees, all that sort of stuff. Or as you just go through different phases of your life, you know, for a student, let's say, how should their training change depending on when they're in summer break versus when they're in finals? Yeah. A big, a big life change. So th- so those uh, I think inter-individual differences I'm really bad at that. Yeah, we'll, e- we'll,
0: we'll edit it. We'll ask yeah, someone than me and we'll, both and both we'll edit it back yeah. in.
1: <laughs> but for that individual there's there's going to be changes as well as individual to individual.
0: Yeah. Damn, so I'm, that, glad I, I'm glad I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs>
1: yeah, so, so to give, you know, sort of a a, a short answer to to what is a, a big question of like, you know, yeah. someone someone's going to 24 hour fitness and they're not seeing the progress that they, that they want to see. Mm. It's because, you know, they're not satisfying probably things higher up in that, in that hierarchy. Uh, so they need to change something. They're Mm. either doing too much or not enough. Uh, that's sort of the simplest, the simplest one. Uh, I'd say more often than not people aren't training hard enough or they're not managing fatigue properly. So, you know, they go and they do bench and arms five days a week. Uh, right. And so maybe they, they aren't managing fatigue or they need to introduce some variation there with, you know, changes and set, set rep strategies, change the exercise. Um, but yeah, we've got a lot of stuff about that. Scientific Principles of Strength Training is the book. I have a YouTube series, uh, one video for each principle. They're like, Fifteen to thirty minutes each, mm-hmm. um, but you know, qu- questions like, you know, what what do they need to change? Type of thing, or, or the example I always use is, who will ask, well, how often should I squat? And yeah. they're asking that from a very innocent place, wanting, you know, it's a simple question and they want a simple answer. Yeah, uh, but I I refuse to to you know give blank a blanket answer of without the context of that person to say, you know, two times a week is the best or three times a week is the best. Even though yeah. I know that's what they they want. They want, yeah, they yeah. Want answer, And there are people who will give them that simple answer. Those people are probably not giving them the right answer. And um, we're not
0: going to let them on this show. Chad.
1: Yeah. I want you to know, okay? Yeah, I'm not Like I refuse <laughs> to do that because I feel like it would be a disservice to the people because while well, all this stuff, you know, people might be listening now and just be like, holy shit, you know, this is all going over my head. As you get into it, it's not, too complicated, but I want to give people the understanding to be prescriptive or sorry, to be descriptive rather than prescriptive mm. for this stuff so they can understand. Well, two times a week might be right for me now, but a year from now, maybe three times a week is right, or four times a week, or once, or all these different factors, or what's right for you know, my my training partner might not be right for me. Um, and for them to be able to make those adjustments so they can have you know, they can reach the goals that they're, they're working so passionately towards.
0: Yeah. You know, what's interesting too, is like, I mean, this is something that I love talking about. I'm super passionate about it. And I've been reading about it for years. And even I find myself, there's so many factors to take into consideration that if you are trying to like program for yourself, it's easy to be like, oh man, we're (laughs) like, you you can get turned around. You know what I mean? Um, So thankfully there's folks like you out there who can help keep it straight for everyone. You know, I asked you about deloading and I, I'd be uh, angry at myself if I didn't ask, you know, what does a, what does a deload week look like? And I <laughs> guess you just got done telling me like, don't ask a
1: specific answer to that. Yes. All yeah. right. Let's um, go. Here we go. Yeah. So typically a, a deload week and these numbers are based off of the training that you've been doing. Right. Uh, a 10 to 20% reduction in intensity Hmm. and a 20 to 50% reduction in volume. So let's say last week you did five sets of eight at 300 pounds in the deadlift. Mm. Your reload week then might be three sets of eight at 270 pounds or five sets of six at 270 pounds. And if you feel really run down, maybe you're you're more to the 50% reduction in volume. So, you know, you, you might do, you were doing five sets of six uh, or five sets of eight, 40 reps. You'd go down to five sets of four, uh, mm. just 20 reps. So a, a 50% reduction, or instead of just dropping from 300 to 270, a 10% reduction, maybe you go down to 240, uh, you know, a 20% reduction, but you know, playing with those ranges based on how you feel it's, you know, to give the bigger answer, part of, part of that thing, uh, would be that there's there's three levels of fatigue. Okay. There's training within within your MRV, normal training, training that you're able to recover from. Hmm. Then there's overreaching, which could be functional, planned, or non-functional, not planned. And there's overtraining, which is this you know chronic overreaching. You should be functionally overreaching at the end of a training cycle. So, where the last d- hard day or two of your training cycle, you feel very bad, but not so bad that you can't complete the the planned training. Yeah. You do it and it's going to be hard. Then at the start of a deload week, you will now feel even worse because <laughs> you did those last hard training cycles. Yeah. And you'll look at this deload workout, you know, which is maybe You know four sets of five at 240 right after you've done uh you know five sets of eight at 300 and you're like this is a joke this is going to be so easy Hmm. part of you is like i don't even want to go in and do it i feel like shit this is like a throwaway workout you're going to go in you're going to do it and it's going to feel way harder than you expected it to (laughs) what it looked like on paper is going to feel much more challenging because you have a lot of fatigue built up and yeah. you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Like, I don't want to lift anymore, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Then, you know, that's Monday of the deload week, and Tuesday is probably like that. Wednesday, you start to trend up a little bit. And then, you know, Friday or Saturday, your last workout of the deload, it's still this easy workout. And now you're you're looking at it like, this is, this is nothing. You go in and just crank the reps out, and you're like, you know, I'm done with this weak shit, giving back right. heavy weight. <laughs> and then you start hard training again, and right. This begins anew. Um, so that that should sort of be the psychological feel. And and so when you get to that start of the deload week and you feel terrible, like that's fine. You should feel terrible. You'll feel better throughout the week. Not doing anything is not the right answer. That doing those light workouts will one help you, you know, stay in touch with your technique because technique could decay throughout that week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will actually help facilitate recovery. You know, getting the blood flowing through through the exact muscles that we're trying to trying to recover um, yeah the another kind of little bit of advice for a deal week is deal weeks are not the time for new stuff it's uh. while, while it can be this sort of like lo- loose more loosely structured training it's not the time to be like well you know i haven't done split squats in three months so i can kind of do whatever during this deload load week let me throw these split squats in because what happens when you do a new exercise? Oh, yeah. It makes you really sore. exactly. It makes yeah, you really exactly cool. an exercise you know because it's a new like adaption, off, right? It generates more fatigue. Mm. Uh um, so you want to avoid doing new stuff, the only caveat to that being is if it's going to be an exercise that is coming into your program starting in the next training block. Ah, okay. Uh, when you come off of the deal, yeah, go ahead and introduce it just a little bit, you know? Yeah, uh, don't so overdo you, it. Start to familiarize yourself and create that smooth transition from uh, block to block of training. And, and what are you doing for
0: like accessories? Are you cutting back the reps and volume, just the same general principle? Cause I know that some, some folks say like, oh, you can keep the accessory stuff hot, you know, uh,
1: similar to where it was, what, yeah, what's so your stance again, on that? It just goes with the idea of, of the range of, of work. If you mm. feel not too bad. Then you just lower the main work and you keep the accessory where it is. You feel really bad, you lower the main work uh, even more and lower the accessory some. But generally, yes, you you do not need to treat the accessory work as uh, severely as you do the main work.
0: Got it. Yeah. I mean, something, uh, we didn't talk about this yet, but you know, like I I have a full-time job, three kids and I used to commute. So when you mentioned like, you know, there's a lot of other factors that can play into like, kind of like your stress level and like fatigue, uh, you know, I'm living and breathing that every day, like a lot of folks who listen. So, you know, I have tried to make an effort on deload weeks to say like, just, you know, just back off. Like, you know, even though you're tired from the lifting, like you got a lot of other shit going on in your life. For sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, give myself a break. But to your point, I end up feeling that way. Like by the end of the week, I'm like starting to feel a little bit fresher. And I'm like, yeah, oh, like
1: chomping at the bit by the end of the week. Trying yeah, to- yeah. Yeah. And you know, in regards to recovery stuff, we have a book uh, by Dr. James Hoffman called recovering from training that I'd suggest we have a couple hmm. YouTube videos of recovery adaptive strategies in which he outlines different ideas. One sort of main takeaway for people competing in powerlifting or weightlifting uh, is I tend to avoid like passive recovery modalities within the course of normal training. So a passive recovery modality, something like an ice bath or contrast shower. Um, oh, you avoid those? During the course of regular training. So I reserve that uh, for either okay. a or a taper. Because mm-hmm. you know the the function of a, an ice bath, let's say, is for reducing inflammation. But mm-hmm. uh, inflammation is a very powerful uh, adaptation signal to the body. Yeah. So when you t- you know your your body has all this inflammation and it and it you know it doesn't know what squats, benches, and deadlifts are. It just knows stress stimulus. These you know uh, stuff like inflammation. So all this inflammation yeah. is like, oh my god, Chad is. He's trying to kill me. We have to get ready. So the next time he tries to kill us with, with this metal thing on his back that we're ready. Right. But if I remove some of that inflammation sort of artificially through something like an ice bath, now it doesn't know that it needs to get as ready. So it's a very, very small, you know, we're talking fractions of a percent difference. Um, but if people get into the habit of oh, after every squat workout, I always do ice bath, then yeah, you're going to dampen the effectiveness of your, of your training. But during a deload week where decaying fatigue and feeling better, especially like the second half of a yeah. day is the primary goal. You don't really have to worry about dampening that the adaptations of training. Then you just want to worry about feeling better. So then right. that can be appropriate during the course of regular training, focus on the, the main components of recovery good sleep good diet stress management um let that be what how your recovery is achieved during normal training and then save the other stuff for deloads or for times of particularly high stress whether that's like very very hard training you're training double days and your options are take an ice bath and do that afternoon's workout or uh, skip the ice bath and then you have to reduce the afternoons workout or skip it all together. Then yeah, the ice bath is, is better. Um, or, you know, if it's a really stressful time for whatever other reason you need that little bit extra, sure, go ahead and do it, but you know, make it a sparing thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great perspective. Uh, and, and something that I, I, I think a lot of people probably weren't aware of. Uh, okay. So here's, here's a question that I have for you and we've, we've kind of referenced it a little bit Um, you know, but peaking, you know, what, what does effective peaking look like? And I guess it probably, maybe it's an incorrect assumption. It it varies based upon like the sport or the event that you're preparing your athletes for Um, you know, but someone who's, who's trying to peak for an event, like what are the general principles that they should kind of be thinking about?
1: Yeah. So certainly the, you know, what the, peak will actually look like in terms of extra selection and all this sort of stuff is dictated by specificity. Mm. Uh, so it's going to vary based on, you know, the endeavor they're, they're going for, but the principles of it will, will stay the same. And that's about becoming more specific. So doing more of the competitive exercise for developing technical prowess as you go doing it yeah. higher and higher, closer to competition intensities and then managing the fitness fatigue relationship, for so that on the day of competition you have the highest fitness possible with the lowest fatigue possible. That's you know that's the goal. Uh, and what will also hold true for any you know track and field, powerlifting, weightlifting, whatever, is that effective peaking starts at the beginning of the program. That mm. you can't. You know, just you can't have kind of a month of shitty training or two months of shitty training and be like, I'm gonna have a great peaking block and then a great meet. Yeah, I'm gonna you knock it out. Things. I'm
0: gonna knock it out that last week.
1: Yeah, and and, the, <laughs> you know, as much as I love Rocky Four, uh you know one of cool the greatest lines, movies of all time. Variety of sports series, they do perpetuate the wrong ideas about uh about the structure of training, they do the most training right before right before they go, and then they seem to to save the world and end the Cold War. But uh, I don't yeah, know. Just so put on a little burn, a little burning heart,
0: and uh, get out there in a log cabin. Yeah.
1: So that time right before competitions, when you're going to be doing the least training. So when I say it starts at the beginning of the training plan, you have to build up your fitness. You have to build up, you know, general work capacity, special work capacity um really fatigue early in in the training process mm-hmm. so that when you get to the peaking block which is inherently lower volume yeah. you have enough fitness built up that you can you know begin to reduce volume of, of training but still but not you know not start to fall off in the fitness level you have so for power with using powerlifting as the example if all you ever did were sets of one in the squat. Hmm. How would you take away from that yeah. to be able to manage that fitness fatigue relationship, to be able to, to decay fatigue without losing fitness? You can't because there's nothing to take away from. Now, I mean, I guess you could early be doing 20 sets of one and later be doing three sets of one, but that just sounds like a real pain in the ass. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Um, so building up volume early in the, in the training plan is going to, know, help kind of carry carry your fitness through longer, help you retain it longer as you start to cut out volume uh, without your fitness uh, starting to fall off. So yeah. you gotta you gotta you know build that, and and a lot of times for peaking or phase potentiation we use like the analogy of a skyscraper, or you gotta you know maybe even dig down the foundation uh, and create that broad base to be able to build taller and taller and taller. Uh, with all that said. You can have great training the whole way. You know, while a great peaking block can't save a bad training cycle, Mm -hmm. a bad peaking block can screw up everything. You know, by doing too much training, by doing stuff that's not specific enough. I've seen people, very good lifters, people who are really respected academics, you know, be doing sets of six in the deadlift two weeks out from a meet. And then either not lift well, injure themselves right before the meet because they're doing training that's not appropriate for that time. It's not specific to that phase of training, you know? Well, and, and, like, and, and like,
0: and how, like how far out do you start thinking about peaking? So the, and, deeper, and how to, stronger, yeah. the
1: more experienced you are, the longer peaking block you're going to have. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, in powerlifting, I squatted 970 pounds, Um, my last squat in training before that, uh, the heaviest squat I did in training before that was 915 pounds. Okay. So squatting 915 pounds takes longer to recover from, takes longer to decay that fatigue than squatting 715 or 515 or 315 does. So I was using a two week, uh, taper and taper peak, uh, tapers like the end of the peak. It's the deload into the meat. Yeah. Um, sort of semantics uh so i was a two-week taper which is about as long as anyone i know of in powerlifting but looking at all these individual differences which dictate taper length uh you Mm. know the bigger you are the longer taper you need i was 365 pounds the stronger you are the longer taper you need i was squatting 950 pounds the longer you've been training the longer the longer taper you Will need. I've been training for 15 years at that at that point, so I was the farthest extreme there. But typically, most people will fall somewhere between a three and 10 day taper. So that's the time from their last uh, peaking, overloading training to the competition. But in terms of how long the entire peaking block would be, you know, on the short end, very small beginner female lifter. May have two weeks of peaking training, and then like a three or four day taper into the meet. So they mm. might, you know, just start doing heavy singles and doubles. Um, for they do that for two weeks, maybe two and a half weeks, and then like their last hard workouts on a Tuesday, and then they would compete on Saturday.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so a pretty sh- a pretty short time. Uh, where for me, I was doing like five or six weeks of very hard. Oh, peaking yeah. Training, high intensity, and then two weeks of taper. So the entire process was eight weeks long. But if that same very small beginner female tried to take an eight-week peaking block and plus taper, they would start to lose a lot of fitness because mm-hmm. the weights they're lifting for those low volumes aren't stimulating enough to to keep their hypertrophy, to keep their neural strength adaptations, um, because they just yeah, you know, the weights aren't heavy enough. They're not generating enough stimulus from them.
0: Yeah, uh, it's so interesting. And I think, man, I might I might mess this up, but uh, I remember watching Eddie Hall talk about like his approach to deadlifting after he did like the the five hundred kilos. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he was saying that uh, one of the things that he tweaked was like to your point, he he wouldn't deadlift within like ten days. He wouldn't have two deadlifting sessions within like ten days of each other.
1: Yeah, because it yeah. Just when, like you're, the, when you're lifting at weights, it's yeah. got to be longer between the heavy sessions. Now, I, I can't speak specifically to what he was doing, and obviously, it was extremely effective. Mm. But uh, you know, as as people hear that and and sort of the the danger uh, or, or folly of people looking to someone like Eddie Hall or even at my own training or what Marissa does, is yeah. at what that person is doing now rather than what they did to uh. get. Because the training you do while deadlifting 500 kilos, you know, is much different. Because <laughs> yeah, he, those deadlift sessions is generating so much stimulus and so much fatigue. He needs that long to recover, uh, right. nervous system to recover. But he'd also been, de- you know, been deadlifting for how many years before that? Mm-hmm. So taking ten days in between might represent a very small fraction. I mean, his deadlift technique is so stable where yeah. someone else they're like well Eddie Hall only deadlifts every 10 days and they start to deadlift every 10 days and so they pull Anti- I, bro you're 180 pounds from day to go to the 315 again I'm like oh you know my technique just feels kind of off Yeah. Um, you know one that person their this is to the principle of SRA they would have recovered and adapted and I know they can't see my finger graph but they recover and adapt and then their fitness would start to decay because they had no new input to it, and it can't hold it on for that long. But if they were, you know, to introduce smaller, lighter sessions in between, now they'd be able to keep their technique sharp. They'd be able to, mm. uh, you know, retain some of the qualities from earlier. But if they're if they're loaded the right way and managed properly, it's not going to generate too much fatigue to where they're not recovered again for that heavy deadlift in 10 days but they they'll need to do some other stuff in between it as well where someone like eddie hall where the session is just so massive and so fatiguing and his mm-hmm. technique is so stable he probably could go with only deadlifting every 10 days without any deadlift type of movement in between but even then you know i'd, I'd still advise someone like that and i've coached you know seven guys to over 800 pound deadlifts uh wow. You know, they're all doing, they might only deadlift heavy, like heavy, heavy every three weeks. Hmm. Uh, they're deadlifting, you know, between those, those true heavy sessions, they're deadlifting six other times in those, in that three week span.
0: Yeah. No, and that uh, that's, I'm glad you called that out, right? Because I think the big theme here today is like, it's so individualized. You know, and it's not only individualized from like person to person. It depends on like time of year, how long you've been doing it, like what you're currently going through. Um, So I think that's helpful for people because it is easy to look at what someone at a very elite level is doing and take that as like, oh, that's the best approach without recognizing like all the, the amount of factors that contributed along the way to get them at that point and the factors where they're at presently, they contribute to them like making that decision. So that's, sure. that's really helpful. So let me ask you this and we can wrap up on this because I'm just interested. Um, you know, w- w- how do you go about like continuing your education and, and evolving as a coach within the sport? Right. Because I mean, to hear you speak, you know, it's like, I, I'm going to have to go look a lot of this up (laughs) afterwards. Um, You know, like what's your process for kind of like continuing to evolve?
1: Yeah. So even to, to kind of give you the journey of that, I guess I I started coaching. uh, Well, I've written my own program for the overwhelming majority of my lifting career, which began at 14 years old. Mm -hmm. I've had a couple coaches along the way, but for the most part, it was me writing my own program. I turned 34 next month. So for 20 years. Um, so that's where I began learning about training. You know, I was 14 in the year 2000, uh, where it was a lot harder to find information about, uh, training on the internet. It is now abundant, maybe overly abundant because there's no barrier to entry for the people who talk about these, these things, uh, that a, a slickly worded, you know, Photoshopped picture may, uh, make someone an expert when they are not truly an expert quick note on that when looking for someone is it worth listening to their information have they done it themselves have they coached people to do it are they educated yeah not checking two of those three boxes I take pause question Uh, it yeah you know because it was harder to find information about training even though I was definitely trying to do that um I began at that at an early age in high school, finding coaches who I saw were successful, uh, largely in track and field, uh, through mm-hmm. the college. So when I was at a high school track meet, I would see the, the, you know, I knew who the coaches were, who were like the best coaches. And I would just ask them about training. I would just badger them with questions basically as long <laughs> as they would answer them. Yeah. Uh, that, that habit continued into college, uh, asking college track coaches, stuff learning from not just throwing coaches you know my events but sprint coaches as well talking to the athletic training staff talking to their strength and conditioning staff who worked with other sports uh do not you know uh, i have you watched the bruce lee 30 for 30 the other week no but i'm, so I'm excited pretty, too. pretty good he has a book that that there's a book that just came out called bruce lee a life that i would suggest more but oh, okay to the lee effect of things you know Bruce Lee was sort of, you know, the father of, of MMA in the sense that he didn't just learn this one style. He tried to learn from, you know, uh, boxers and wrestlers and judokas and all this different stuff and, and to take what is useful and to leave what wasn't. Mm. Um, So I think that coaches and, and athletes should, should do the same thing that if you're a powerlifter and all you're doing is talking to powerlifting coaches, your knowledge will always be limited. Uh, yeah. Talk to weightlifting coaches. Talk to sport performance coaches. Talk to physical therapists. Hmm. Uh, you know, take what's useful from each of those. I was fortunate to to get to be you know through being a good shot putter and being at big track meets and all this stuff, get exposure to a lot of high level coaches and athletes. But I had to you know be willing to ask them the questions to kind of take the risk of them you know blowing me off, and that happened a couple of times but uh you know so having those conversations with people then about that same time 18 19 years old uh you know is when i started information started to come up, become a little bit more prevalent a little easier to find you know i was buying more books um uh, stuff like super training science, science and practice of strength training yeah. uh transfer of training so i read more books but still always talking to coaches going to seminars uh, and at this, at this point in my, in my life, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to some podcasts here and there. I'll, I'll read, uh, articles that someone, you know, that I respect recommends to me, but more than anything else, you know, I've been able to curate a network of experts around mm. people who are living this every day, uh, as speed coaches, sport performance coaches, weightlifting coaches, physical therapists, and, and just have, Discussions with them. Anyone who's like gone to seminars and conferences and stuff know that like the presentations are fine, but you learn the most about training at the bar after you know just like in the private conversation kind of stuff. So I get to have a lot of that with you know people like Dr. Mike Isertel, James Hoffman, uh, Max Ada, Les Spellman, uh, people who are you know leaders in their field, yeah, and bounce ideas off of them and and. And I think as you understand the the principles that make training successful, it's so much easier for me now to look at something quickly and know that's not worth listening to at all. Mm. <laughs> or let's dive into this a little bit deeper. That's a little bit interesting. So it, it takes a lot f- for me to be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to read this guy's article. I'm going to buy his book and, and read his book. There's a pretty high uh, barrier While while the barrier of entry to – talk about fitness and lifting and stuff in the world of youtube and instagram is very very low yeah and for me to read to give a shit about what you have yeah written or <laughs> said is very very high uh yeah. so, so they have to prove themselves quite quite well before they before they come across these big headspace yeah
0: yeah awesome well, Chad, man, this has been great. I really appreciate it. And, uh, I'm certainly going to, you know, link to the, the juggernaut, uh, platform. Cause like I said, it's such, it's such a tremendous resource. Um, but you know, w- where else, if people want to follow you, uh, where would you recommend they start?
1: Uh, probably, you know, if they're just looking to learn, uh, juggernaut training systems, YouTube over 1400 videos. Uh, I, I Over defy, 1,400 videos. <laughs> I, I defy you to watch them all. Uh, <laughs> because it's such an overwhelming thing. Uh, if you Google Juggernaut YouTube book, mm. last year we hit 250,000 subscribers. And I looked at that and was like, hey, this is a nice time for, for me to do this. I curated about 200 of our best videos, uh, 40, mm. 45 hours. Worth of content by topic into a little bit more of like a curriculum by topic because it's it's tough and that's a tough thing about learning on the internet is you can jump in at any at any point you don't have to take the one hundred one before you get to the two hundred one just first watch my most advanced you know granular video and be like what the fuck is this guy talking about but other videos that explain uh, the the basics of it so. Google juggernaut YouTube book. It's a free download they oh, perfect! That information. So check that out. JTS strength.com. Uh, and then follow chat at Chad Wesley Smith and at juggernaut training and at juggernaut coaching uh, for all our Instagram stuff.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I think I got through like two of my 10 questions, but yeah. it's been like so incredibly informative. So thank you. We'll have to have you back at some point in the future, but uh, awesome, man, Chad, thank you. My pleasure, Ken. You better go ask mommy, daddy. (laughs) All righty. Welcome back, Sonia.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) As I was listening to this one back, I couldn't help but have the thought that uh, you listening to this would never happen if you weren't married to me.
2: (laughs) This is true.
0: Uh, How much did you enjoy this one?
2: I mean, I definitely, I thought it was very informative. It just has no application in my life, really. No need to deload for you? No. Well, no. I, I, there is a need, right?
0: Oh, yes. So maybe,
2: so maybe I got some stuff out of it.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, this one I knew was going to be more like lifting specific or like strength training and programming. Yeah. It's not going to be for everybody, but hopefully some people took something away from it. I throw but some
2: weights around you from You throw some weight
0: around. I will say, for people listening at home. A squad 90 pounds. She's pretty yoked. <laughs> but, uh, so I was shocked, however, because I came in with that assumption. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were quickly discussing the takeaways. And <laughs> you blew me away. So actually, I'll kick it to you. Would you like to open up with your first takeaway?
2: Sure. I, well, Kenny, I take my job very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm assigned to taking... Mm-hmm getting some takeaways together, I do that.
0: I know you do, but I, I, I'm not even going to ruin it. I'm amazed by the detail and specificity of these takeaways. So please just just go ahead. Number one, just let it rip.
2: Okay. It's
0: it's better than what I had written down, quite frankly.
2: um, The first thing was about the central nervous system, Mm -hmm. the CNS, as you called it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as we do.
2: Um, But he said velocity is a big indicator of neural fatigue. And it's brought on by a much higher, by much higher level efforts.
0: I can honestly say that I never thought you and I would be discussing. Neural fatigue. Neural fatigue. So (laughs) this is an exciting development in our relationship.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was cool.
0: Um, And that's one thing that I, I know I've talked about a lot on the podcast already, but I just feel like I've become so much more aware of fatigue and stress. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about like, there's all these other factors that roll into it. And we touched on it today. Like it could be work. It could be things in your personal life, whatever. But I, I personally, and I I bet a lot of people who are serious lifters or, you know, train hard, if they're not paying attention to it already after listening to this, like they might notice like there, there really is like a fatigue that happens when you're pushing yourself Mm -hmm. at a really hard level, especially with like really high intensities. Yeah. So I think that's a big one. And I thought it was cool that he was saying that like velocity can, can kind of be a measure to understand like, Hey, are you fatigued? Yeah. He also threw it right back in my face and he's like, well, if the goal is to get the weight up, it doesn't matter the speed. So I'm not always concerned about that, but yes, it is an indicator. Yeah. One of, one of many that they use that I thought was really cool.
2: Very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, we talk about this all the time, but now that we have kids, and you say that, like, if you had known this stuff when you were younger and in yeah. sports, it would be such a game changer. But how exciting is it that we know all this stuff now? For I know our children.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think about that a lot. It's going to be fun. Um, mm. And I think about it from the perspective of I don't want to be the crazy dad who like forces them <laughs> and like tries to live through them vicariously, but in which I assume they will, like we're both really into like sports and we're competitive. Mm-hmm. If they're into it, I am pumped about kind of like the toolbox we're building Yeah. of, you know, like ways that they can kind of like, I don't know, achieve at the highest level um, or For reach sure. their peak performance, which is pretty cool. So I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm pumped about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. You had mm-hmm. another takeaway.
2: Um, Yeah, I did.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the Sonia show.
2: (laughs) Bigger, stronger lifters may need a deload after two to three weeks, as opposed to more average people who need to deload after four to five weeks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And uh, now we're talking deloads together. This is just like, you know, 13 year old me when he envisioned where his life would be and, and what his wife might be like, I think this is don't, what I probably don't mentioned. gross people out. I don't know, It's okay. I know a lot of friends and family listen.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So I, that's one of the takeaways I had too was like just the need to deload. Number one, he's like, you need it. If you don't think you need it, like then you're not working hard enough is what he said. So mm-hmm. that was a big piece of it. But to your point, what he also said was like the D load is dependent upon like so many individual variables. Right. Yeah. Like he was saying, like if if you, you know, I mean, I think when he was describing himself, like he was 365 pounds. He was when he was doing his powerlifting competitions, he was doing over like twenty two hundred pounds in weight, almost twenty three hundred pounds of weight. Crazy. So it's like the demands on his body, on his nervous system were so much greater than maybe someone who was like a novice lifter. Mm -hmm. and was lighter and he didn't necessarily marry about, or I guess it did a little bit. So I wouldn't go into that, but you know, like it's so individualistic. So I I thought he gave like some really great guidelines. So I'm not even going to try and like repeat them here. I would go back and listen to it. I'll probably go back and refer to it myself. Yeah. I think the takeaway there is like one, you need to deload, but two, like you need to think about like you as an individual, like what are the factors to take into consideration? Mm Mm-hmm. And when I brought up Eddie Hall, I thought this was another good call out too. He was like, a big mistake people make is like looking at what, what someone like an Eddie Hall did and the approach he takes. Yeah. And thinking that's a good approach for them. Yeah. Right? It's so like someone
2: who's been lifting like a year. Right. Exactly. Eddie Hall's been for his entire life.
0: Exactly. And lifting such incredible weights that it's just yeah. a completely different ball game. So you, I felt like his theme, you know, was like, it's about the individual Mm -hmm. and beyond that there's so many things and variables an individual needs to take into consideration to like determine what the right course of action is, whether that be peaking, whether that be Mm -hmm. trying to get some sort of adaption. So, you know, that's why I really believe like it's hard. It's confusing, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, like I listened to that and I've, I mean, I've got, I talked to him, I've talked to the other 18 previous guests the stuff is confusing. Mm-hmm. So that's why it is like so good to identify a good coach. Yeah. You know, like if you don't have the time or the resources to figure it out, like working with someone like Chad, like let him figure it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like save yourself some of the headspace. Mm-hmm. Um, any other thoughts on that? You're crushing on, it so far. On deloading? No, you don't need, I mean, no, you don't need to bring anything else to the table. You've, You've already far (laughs) surpassed my expectations for this episode.
2: Shall we move on to the next?
0: Shall we? The other one that I I thought, and I've looked into this a lot, and it's tough to really find like a good prescription for how you're supposed to approach peaking. Mm -hmm. And I thought he gave some really good guidance there. But the one takeaway that I think is really important is that peaking actually starts at the beginning of your program. So counter to like Rocky Four, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know, a cinematic masterpiece, <laughs> unquestionably. Right? You, you you can't like make up for a bad like training program at the very end right before a competition. Right. Like yeah. peaking can't save you, but it, like I think what he said is it can like certainly like it can ruin it. Right? Like bad peaking can like completely throw you off for the event of your yeah. competition.
2: I remember the first time you did your decathlon. The week before, you told me that you planned to do very little,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: I was like, "That sounds like a terrible idea." Have Lazy. you never seen Rocky Four?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rocky Four is a staple in this household. It's not just me.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't even know peeking was a thing, except yeah. for you know, with high school girls. <laughs> no,
0: wow, hot takes. Some, <laughs> <just yeah>. <laughs> hey, your words, not mine. Uh, yeah, it's important, right? And I, I think. There's probably a lot of people who do think like the closer they get to a competition, like they probably get anxious about where they're at and they try and like put in more work, you know, Mm -hmm. they try and squeeze in that last work in the last week or two. When in actuality, what you should be doing is like cutting the volume, cutting the intensity yeah, so that you're fresh at the time of your competition, whatever that may be. It could be wanting to do bench press. It could be a track event. It could be a football game. It could be anything, a Spartan race, you name it. Um, but to his point, you should be actually dialing back and to be able to dial back, you need to make sure that you were doing enough volume and intensity that like you have something to dial back from. So his example was like, if you've been doing nothing but like one rep squats the whole time, there's nowhere to go back from that. You're at one. There's nothing to cut away from. Yeah. So you need to be smart in how you program it.
2: Mm -hmm. So anyway, very interesting stuff.
0: There was so much information in this one that, like, when I was so trying to do the show notes, I actually ended up just like doing a big broad summary because I was like, "If it, it's not even worth me trying to like break this out,
2: mm-hmm. it's
0: just like, hey, here's the topics he's gonna hit. <laughs> he's gonna do such a great job explaining them. Yeah, and that's why his online platform does so well.
2: Yeah, did he say 1,400 videos? Insane. Crazy.
0: Fourteen hundred videos.
2: Do you hundred or thousand? Do you say thousand?
0: Uh I think it's fourteen hundred. Okay.
2: I that mean that's a lot of videos. Well,
0: but it's like how many hours of video content is that? hmm It's pretty cool what he's built. Um, yeah, and like I said, I get I get a ton of use out of it. Yeah. So okay. What else is going on? We've got a we've got a couple minutes here. Any um, anything that uh you want to rap about?
2: Rap? You want me to rap? <laughs>
0: it's just a turn of phrase.
2: You know I can't rap.
0: I, um, I slept horribly. Yeah. Like I, really horribly.
2: Yeah, it was a rough night for you.
0: Ironically, the you, best yeah. the best our baby has ever slept.
2: Like <laughs> I woke up so refreshed. I know. And he was just so miserable.
0: Yeah, yeah I'd been up since like one. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. But I went out.
2: You know what? I, took I beat a walk. him pretty badly oh, in badminton yesterday. Give me a break. And, and that's you- the
0: show, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I had to swallow a big piece of humble pie yesterday.
2: So he was probably reeling from that.
0: During our our fa- fun family outing. <laughs> you are sneaky good at racket sports. Not sneaky. I know you're good. But maybe I, I didn't even realize how competitive you were. I haven't seen that side of you yeah. maybe ever.
2: What? Yeah, I guess not. We don't really. I'm usually pregnant and I can't really compete.
0: Yeah, we usually have a baby in you.
2: Not pregnant now. <laughs>
0: Not to your knowledge. Anywho, so that was fun, but uh, another good episode. We've got some good ones coming down the pike, too. I know exactly who they are. (laughs) You're looking at me like, oh, this big dummy. But there's some really good ones. Um, The one with Shane Farmer is awesome. It goes in a completely different direction than I expected. Uh, We've got another one coming up with Colleen Hacker that we haven't recorded yet, but I am super pumped about. So there's some really Mm -hmm. good guests coming down the pike here. And my buddy Karan. Mm -hmm. NFL, starter, journeyman, got some good ones. So anyways, thanks for listening, folks. And uh, we will see you next week.
2: Hasta la vista.